Walk off and leave me. Oh, there we go. Bring it in for the real thing. Yeah. Well, praise the Lord. How y'all doing? Wow, I just sounded really Texan, didn't I? Sorry about that. How y'all doing? Isn't God good? He's been so good. I want to do something, if you don't mind. I want to stand. I know you've been standing a while, but uh, let's stand back up. Let's open in prayer. You know what I've noticed in the American church? We get really awkward if there's no music. We get really quiet. And even when there is music, a lot of times we just stand there watching everybody else. But can I tell you that God inhabits the praises of his people? Can I tell you that I have experienced this in foreign countries, that they don't, have, they don't even have electricity, much less instruments. But when everybody corporately actually vocalizes it, in the Jewish understanding, it isn't even a prayer if it doesn't cross your lips. If we all actually say something, which, be honest, not all of us actually pray when, when somebody gets up here, come on, let's, let's praise the Lord, you know. But there is power in corporate prayer. God moves when there is unity in the body. And when everybody raises their voice and actually verbalizes a prayer, it doesn't have to be King James, these and thou's. Thank God, because I, I can't speak that anyway. It doesn't have to be something eloquent and like theologically deep. It just needs to be heartfelt, sincere to our Father in heaven, to our Creator. So is that okay? Can we just open in prayer for just a minute, just to tell God we love him, just to thank him for bringing us through another week? Can we just pray for just a minute? Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I worship you, God, for who you are. I thank you that there is none beside you. You alone are God, and beside you there is no other. There is no one who can compare to you. You alone are the creator of the universe. You're the lover of my soul. You're the redeemer. You're my kinsman redeemer, God. You're my savior. You're the mighty God, the everlasting father. There's salvation found in no other name than yours, Jesus. I thank you, God, that you are a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I thank you for everything that you've done for me. I thank you for everything that you will do. God, if you never do another thing for me, there's enough to praise you for throughout all eternity. I thank you, Jesus, because you are our coming king. You are the Messiah, the risen Savior. You are the son of the living God, and I worship your name. You alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are worthy to open the scrolls. And God, I pray that you inhabit our praises today. I pray, God, that you manifest your presence. Let us learn from your word, God. Let us hear what you have to say to us individually and collectively. Lord, I worship you, and I thank you for everything you've done. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Somebody give the Lord a hand clap of praise. You may be seated. I still didn't hear quite as many as I'd hoped for, but I'm not going to cheerlead today, and I'm not going to make it awkward. Maybe next time. It is okay to pray. It is okay to be heard. I know, I, I feel you. I understand when it's quiet you don't want to hear your own voice. You're afraid somebody else is going to hear you. And, oh, well, I'm not doing it right, or that sounds stupid, or you don't even know what to say. I get it. I promise I do. But if you just take that step, God will honor it, and he'll move. He's no respecter of persons. What does that mean? That means that what he's done for one, he'll do for all. Amen? So I have an intro slide, kind of a title slide. Uh, I don't know if it'll 
visually, graphically represent the topic today, but I want to talk about this concept of identity crisis, okay? And now, y'all may think that it's just because my birthday is Thursday and I'm turning the big four zero. <laughs> it's kind of a, a momentous occasion, kind of a milestone, but I promise you, I assure, I assure you, Y'all aren't going to be my Dr. Phil. I'm not just going to confess and get rid of all my issues about my ongoing identity crisis. But uh, I want to start with a video that I think when I was getting ready for it for today, uh, Pastor Chad unfortunately is sick, and he asked if I could fill in. I was like, bro, you know I can, of course. Uh, I'd love to. I'd be honored to. Uh, wish it was under different circumstances, but, you know, we, we're all praying for him. But when I was preparing for this, this is the concept, the topic that I believe the Lord laid on my heart. We'll see if it was and if I can deliver it effectively. But the, there was an illustration from a movie. Does anybody else in here speak in movie quotes? Okay, like I can drop one-liners. <laughs> I can have an entire conversation with my friends just based in movie quotes. But I find that the, <laughs> the longer it goes on, the less edgy my quotes are and the more like, bro, what are you talking about? I'm getting old, and so the kids now, they don't even get the movie references that I talk about, but I think we may all get this one. I pray, I had to clear that, I'll tell you up front, I, I had to clear this with Pastor Chad. I was like, you think it would cause a problem if I, if I showed this movie clip? Uh, and he said, he gave me permission, so if you get mad, get mad at him. <laughs> don't get mad at me. I, I don't think anybody will have a problem with it. This is not an endorsement of anything, no political, no nothing other than this is an illustration. Everybody good with that? All right. You ready for that back there, Jensen? Oh. All right. So this, this scene, I believe, helps illustrate. Nope. Other video. That's a good one, too. We may watch it later. Okay, here we go. thought I knew. Now I'm not so sure. Well, I know who you are. Shh, come here. It's a secret. Uh, enough already. What is that supposed to mean, anyway? <laughs> Creepy little monkey. Will you stop following me? <laughs> who are you? The question is, who are you? I thought I knew. Now I'm not so sure. Well, I know who you are. Shh, come here. It's a secret. Uh, enough already. What is that supposed to mean, anyway? It means you're a baboon. And I'm not. <laughs> I think you're a little confused. Wrong. I'm not the one who's confused. You don't even know who you are. Oh, and I suppose you know. Sure do. You're Mufasa's boy. Hi. Hey, wait! You knew my father? Correction, I know your father. I hate to tell you this, but he died a long time ago. Nope, wrong again! <laughs> He's alive, and I'll show him to you. 
You follow old Rafiki. He knows the way. Come on. All right, how many of you know this movie? I was a kid, I was in seventh grade when this movie came out, and I pray, okay, no endorsement of, uh, of pantheism, there's no endorsement of talking to the dead, there's no, none of that, okay? Everybody good with the, this, the disclaimers? 
Do you get the message? Can you preach your own sermon, even if I don't say anything? Can, can we get this whole concept of identity crisis, of forgetting who and whose and what we really are? I believe there's a current identity crisis in the world today. We see it, obviously, with the, with the gender identity confusion, and people are so mixed up, my heart breaks for them. The people who are wrapped up in it and, and not the ones perpetrating it, I believe they have, I believe they're nefarious motives. But the people who are caught up in it, they're caught up in it just like we were caught up in our sin. We needed a Savior just like they need a Savior. But there is confusion today over identity. Culturally, there's confusion over who we, uh, there's confusion as a nation over what are our values, what's our form of government, what's our future, what's our, uh, what are our stated goals. There's confusion, hang on, there's confusion in the church today over what is our purpose, what should our passions be, what are our priorities. There's confusion in, in our culture with, we have identities of victimhood now, where so much of our cultural currency is measured in how much I can prove myself to be a victim, whether it's because of this thing, or I belong to this category, or because this thing happened to me, or that person did this. this group. There's so much confusion over identity. Who am I? Who are we? I believe that a big part of this in our culture, in our nation, and in our church is because of fatherlessness you don't have to agree but I believe it pretty strongly I believe without a strong biblical masculinity presence there are people going around the Bible even says there's going to be an absence of fathers there are people without an identity and identity comes from our fathers does anybody agree with where I'm at so far those of us who have been teenagers can understand this from experience. Teenagers often struggle the most with identity crises. That's where a lot of kids in their adolescent years end up making mistakes. Why? Because they're looking for where do I belong? Oh, this group rejected me over here. The kids at this table rejected me, so I'm going to go sit at this lunch table. Maybe I'll find acceptance there. And once you do find, after two or three times or 20 or however many it takes, maybe the first try, they find that they need to take on the identity of the group that has accepted them. Yes? Can somebody validate that? So if it's a good group, great. Positive peer pressure. If it's a bad group, they're going to do what the group does because they're searching for an identity. How do I, belong, how do I fit in? And it's not just a problem in our teenage years. We go through our entire lives searching for our identity. Or perhaps, if we found it, we identify with things such as our occupation, our title, our position at work. Somebody asks you who you are, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a plumber. Okay, I didn't ask what you do. 
right? Why is it that you hear so many stories about people retiring and then within a, a day, week, month or, or so goes by and then they're not long for this world? Because their entire identity was wrapped up in what they do for income. What about our identity in our family roles? Husband and wife go from being uh, flirtatious, they go from being uh, lovers and passionate, now they're in mom mode, they're in dad mode. Their identity has shifted, and they act accordingly. You can go down the list, our wealth, our income, we identify with that, we gain who we are, our self-concept through all of these things, our political affiliations. Some people are so tied, and I'm talking to both sides, all sides, some people are so committed to their political ideology that, it, that, that, is, that forms the basis of who they are, of how they see themselves as an essential person in this world. Yes, we have hobbies, we have interests, we have subcultures. Some people identify as country, some people identify as rock. We got the biker uh, vibe, we got, we got the golfer vibe, we got all these different things. People find all kinds of ways to form their identity. How do we get there? We get there from parents, friends, teachers, employers, leaders, cultural influences. Can you believe now in social media, people get paid, this just bothers my mind, and I'm relatively, relatively young. Like, social media has a whole category now called influencers, where they get, they get a lot of money because they influence culture, mainly to sell certain products, right? Every, I mean, it's always about money, right? But there are people who influence our thoughts, influence our actions, because at some level we're identifying, we're already identifying with a group and we want to be like that group, or we're searching for a group with which we can identify. So all these influences form how we think, our experiences, our self-talk, what we say to ourselves, about ourselves, we can, we can make a mistake, and it confirms, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a stupid person. I made one mistake. I missed one exit. So I'm a, I'm a failure. I, I, I'm a, you see what I'm saying? Our self, our identity is confirmed by our self-talk. I like this. Uh, thank you, Hilton, for putting it up, or Jensen for putting it up. Our self-identity determines what we do, what we have, how we think, and ultimately, who we are. Does anybody agree with that? A person who identifies as an upstanding, honest person, they're not going to steal a candy bar from the gas station. Why? Because that contradicts their self-image, their identity, their essence of who they are. Conversely, somebody who identifies as a, quote, loser in love, somebody bad with relationships, what behavior do they take? Well, they tend to gravitate toward the same personality types. 
the same types of prospective mates, the same types of relationships. Their behavior confirms what they think about themselves. How they think about themselves, it's a, it's a cycle. How we, how we see ourselves, how we identify, determines our behavior, and our behavior confirms our self-identity. There's a, there's a book back in the day, 1960s. At the time, it was pretty groundbreaking. It was by Dr. Maxwell Marks, uh, Maltz, not Marks, Maltz. Has anybody heard the, the, ever heard of the book Psycho-Cybernetics? I'm not going to get into the details. point of it is he's a plastic surgeon. Some of it was corrective. Some of it was elective surgery, this Maxwell Maltz. And what he found is that his patients, their personalities changed drastically oftentimes once their appearance changed. Personality is based on how we see ourselves. Our actions, our actions, our behaviors are based on our personality. And so he saw this connection. Hang up, you're, uh, you're outpacing me just, just for a second. I'll, I'll let you know when you put the next one up. Thank you back there. So what he found is that we act on our mental representation of a thing, not always the thing itself. So if I see something out of the corner of my eye, and I think a bear has just come through that, it doesn't matter that it's a man in a costume. My reaction, my perception is going to be such as if it actually were a bear. I'm going to have a fear response, right? So how we perceive a thing determines how we react to it. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Just hang with me. Now you can put that one up. How we see ourselves is how we will live. My purpose today, I have this in my notes. I want to make sure and hit this. I'm not trying to be Dr. Phil. I'm not trying to Oprahify anybody here. I'm not trying to get into our feels, nothing like that. I'm not trying to major in pop psychology. Just trying to set a, a foundation. What I really want us to do is take an inventory of our, self, our own identity, our own self-image. Individually, as an individual, how do you perceive yourself? But collectively, how do we perceive ourselves as the body of Christ? As a local assembly, return church, but as the broader body of Christ, how do we see ourselves? Hopefully, with, the, with everything that I've done up to now, I'm trying to establish the principle that that's hugely important. I'll just kind of go ahead and preach just a little bit, but like, if we see ourselves as losers, that's the way we're going to live. I hope I'm not stepping on any th anybody's theology with this one, but I feel strongly about it. It's okay if we see it differently. I do not like the phrase, I am a sinner saved by grace. Now, I get it. We grew up with it. We repeat it because it's just ingrained in our consciousness. I'm not trying to make anybody mad here. But I disagree with that fundamentally. If we see ourselves as sinners, we will never see ourselves as saved by grace. I'm getting to the end, but our identity has to conform to the Word of God. We take on a new image. We take on a new creation, a new identity. When we identify with the one who lives in us, greater is he that's within me 
and he that's within the world. How do we identify? How do we see ourselves? I could give examples, and I still may if I chase rabbits. I could give examples of how we wrongly think about ourselves in the church, how we form our identity. I've been in church my entire life, except for when I wasn't. <laughs> uh, I grew up in it. My families are all preachers, teachers, singers, go down the list. I mean, I get it. I get church. And I've seen people get very territorial. You want to move them from the sound booth to this thing over here? Oh, well, I'm the sound man. You want to move them from their Sunday school teaching spot to this thing over here? And oh, well, I'm a Sunday school teacher. We get wrapped up. It's easy for those of us who have access to a microphone to identify with having a microphone. We get wrapped up. Our identity, our purpose, our self-worth becomes what we do, not who we fundamentally are in our essence. I can give examples. We all get it. We, I mean, go down the list. There are ways that we wrongly identify in, in church, in our, in our church culture. But how do we identify? Let's look at what we should be, okay? And now, now we're getting to the good stuff. Now we'll actually get to the Word of God. Uh, can we just settle? Uh, this is an aside. You get this sermon for free. Can we just settle in ourselves once and for all at this point, if we haven't already, that the Bible is the Word of God? If we don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that changes how we relate to it. If we believe that it's God's express will, all of it from cover to cover, we will live, we can't pick and choose. If we, don't, if we believe part of it, but not all of it, then how can we be sure that we're right about the part of it? It really isn't all or nothing. Either it's all God's Word, all Scripture is inspired, either that is true or it's not. I was on the fence for many years. Can I just say that? Can I admit to that? Like, oh, well, this thing over here, that's allegorical. Oh, and this is fable, and this is not blah, 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 blah. Either it's all God's word, or we can trust none of it to be God's word. So we have to form our identity from God's word. What does the Bible say about us? Our biblical identity. Let's put that one up. Number one, the Bible says that we are loved by God. That's a big deal. I, in my personal life, I'm telling on myself now, I have a big problem accepting love. Okay? I'm getting, getting intimate here with you. I, I, I am ended up being Dr. Phil. I said I wasn't. But it's hard for me. It has been a struggle in my past, in my walk with God, to just accept by faith that God loves me. Has any, am I just reprobate? Am I just a terrible person? Anybody else, can you relate to that? Has anybody ever struggled believing that God could love you? Yeah, he loves all humanity. Yeah, he loves all mankind. He died for the sins of the world. But does he love me? Well, Romans 5.8 says, that God shows his love. I believe love is shown, not told. 
Does anybody agree with that? I believe that you demonstrate love. It's, a, it's something, it's an action. It's not a feeling. There are emotions that go along with it, of course. But ultimately, love is demonstrated, not told, in my opinion. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we had come into church and cleaned up our language and stopped smoking, stopped drinking, mostly. Not after we had done this thing and that thing and blah, 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 followed the list. That's not when he started loving us. While we were still sinners. What have you done since you were a sinner to make God stop loving you? If he loved you then, how can he not love you now? We have to accept by faith. 1 John 4.16 So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. John 3.16 We should all be able to quote this one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I don't know God loves me because I'm standing on a stage with a microphone, or because I just got off the worship team, or because I didn't cuss out my wife yesterday, or because this thing. That I know he loves me because his word tells me he does. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, some of us in here, we may be thinking, oh, this is pretty basic. Yeah, I got all this. And that's cool. If that's you, that's cool. I'm glad you're at that level. But there's others of us that that is a life transformational realization. To understand that the God of the universe, he created everything that exists, and he created everything that doesn't exist. The dark matter that holds the atoms apart. We don't understand, I don't understand that, but God created it. Everything that is seen, everything that is unseen, was created by God, and he still loves me. He still loves you. That has to be the bedrock, foundational understanding of our identity, of how we see ourselves. Number two, we've got to see ourselves, the Bible says, we are forgiven. That's a big deal. I don't know about you, but I got some things in my past I need forgiveness from. I don't know about you, but I can probably, I may be able to make it to lunch without having to ask for forgiveness for something, but you understand what I'm saying? I need some forgiveness and the assurance that I'm forgiven. How do we get that assurance? By faith. By making up in our mind that all of the Bible is actually God's word. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's either true or it isn't. There's no in-between, there's no gray area, there's no nuance. That is either a true statement or it isn't. 
Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's a past tense thing. The first one we read was an ongoing, uh, what is it, future perfect or present, per- whatever, you know, it's an ongoing thing. This one's a past tense. He forgave us. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we get the 13 attributes of God, the 13 attributes of mercy. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Get this one. This is what I want to focus in on because it's, you know, it's <laughs> relevant to the topic. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Has anybody ever studied those three things? We may hear it as like being repetitive and redundant, but did you know that if you go to the original language, those are three separate categories? It covers it all. It covers little to big to everything in between. It covers intentional, covers unintentional. He is faithful to forgive. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Did David have some things to be forgiven from? Yeah. You know what I love about the Bible? One of the many things I love about the Bible, it doesn't cover up for its healing. That's one of the ways that I can personally, you don't have to have the same thought process, but one of the ways that I personally find validation in the Bible is that it doesn't cover up when its heroes do something wrong. It tells the truth about Abraham and Sarah, his sister. Right? It doesn't cover up that episode. It doesn't cover up David and Bathsheba. It doesn't cover up Samson. It doesn't cover up Saul. Go down the list of everybody in the Bible. It doesn't, it points to there's only one only one human ever born in all of mankind's history that is perfect. Doesn't matter how close we come. Doesn't ma- matter how hard we try. There's only one who is good. That's what Jesus said. God is good. God in flesh lived among us. He alone was without sin. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Number three, we've got to see ourselves biblically as reconciled. Now, I don't know if that's a, if that's a familiar term or not. I don't know if that's a theologically uh, whatever advanced term or whatever. But what happens if you're reconciled to somebody? You get back together. At its most simplest definition, right? It's the most common understanding. You get back together. What happened when Adam sinned? All of humanity was separated from God. God created us to have communion and fellowship and relationship with Him. He made us in His image so we have free will. We get to choose. I've used this analogy a lot, and anytime I get on this subject, for whatever reason, it must really illustrate the, the concept in my mind. 
how many, Bethany isn't in here, I guess. She's in, in class. Bethany is so cute. I've known her for five years, and most of that time she's liked me too. Now, I don't know if you've ever met Bethan, and I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm a little bit bigger than Bethan. Yes? I'm, I'm a little bit physically larger, I would say. At any moment, I could physically go over, pick her up, give her a hug, and say, love on me. Right? That's the way my family said it. That's just a way of saying, like, yeah. You get love. Do y'all say that up here in Indiana? Love on me a little bit? Give me a hug, you know? But it's a whole lot better if I don't have to go physically overpower her to receive affection. It's a whole lot better if it's her idea. It's really cool when she comes in and actually willingly gives me a hug. Hey, Sean. You get, you get the analogy that I'm trying to make? God gave us free will because he can cause us to do anything he wants. He can physically overpower us, but he gets so much more enjoyment out of it when we do it willingly. When we're the ones that decide, you know what, I know it's 4.37 in the morning and I, I don't have to get up until 6.30, but I'm going to forgo a little bit of sleep because I want to spend time with, in the presence of my Father. Yeah, I know that I wanted to go out to eat and I wanted to do this thing, but you know what, that mission over there in Ukraine, that really is putting a burden on my heart. I think I'm going to go without McDonald's if it, which these days that's not hard to do. I hate McDonald's now. Sorry. When it's our willing heart, that's why God gave us free will. He is so much more pleased when it's our idea to come and love on him. We are reconciled to God. There's no longer enmity. Romans 5, 9, 11, 9 through 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, by his life that he gave, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's a good thing. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, that's a present tense thing. The Bible says that we are reconciled to God, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the whole point of it. The man Christ Jesus, the fullness of God bodily, he was reconciling man to God. He was restoring the relationship that Adam lost. We have to fundamentally understand that in our own self-identity. I'm going to go quickly. I know everybody wants to get to lunch. Number four, we got to see ourselves as a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me just step back and, and take a, a, a wider lens view. Let me reset how I started out. How we identify is how we'll behave. Our self-image, how we think of ourselves, again, now you're starting to see why I am so opinionated about the, the, the phrase sinner saved by grace. Surely some of these verses are putting a, a question mark 
over that whole concept. No, we're either sinners or we're saved by grace. And how we see ourselves is how we'll live. If we get our identity from how we serve in the body of Christ, that can be taken away. It can change. It can expand. It can contract. The, the baseball team that we go for, my goodness gracious, I used to be so obsessed with baseball, with sports in general. And my whole week would be, it would live and die with how the Dallas Cowboys did. Those of you who know, know that I had a lot of bad weeks during the, <laughs> especially come January and February, right? That's when they like to really trail off. If my identity is wrapped up in how a sports team does, God wants us to see ourselves as he sees us. That is our identity. We're a new creation. Number five, we've been adopted. We, once we were strangers, we were outside the family of Abraham. But now, Ephesians 1.5, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption. Galatians 3.29 if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's a promise that we can take for ourselves. We are Abraham's seed. We have been grafted in to the olive tree. Paul says, he makes another analogy, we've been grafted in. Number six, we are called and chosen. This is our identity in Christ as according to the Bible. We're called and chosen. Ephesians 2.12 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Peter 2.5 and 9 It refers to us as being a, role, a holy, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Did you know that he is echoing directly from Exodus 19 at the foot of Mount Sinai. God chose Israel to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. What does the priesthood do? The priesthood reconciles man and God. It a priesthood biblically in temple times would facilitate the transaction, as it were. So what was the whole nation as a whole supposed to do? Israel was supposed to fulfill its mission to reconcile all the nations of the world to God. But that didn't happen until one man, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. Jesus, the man, God in flesh, reconciled humanity to God. So as a royal priesthood, man, the priesthood studying that concept is so powerful because I grew up hearing that, oh, well, we're kings and priests. We're a royal priesthood. That means that each one of us is a king of our, you know. No. If you understand the priesthood, they were like an army of ants. The Levites, they were assigned specific roles. Now, in our modern, in our modern understanding of church, in our church industry, we wouldn't like to be assigned the task of ascending the altar to go shovel ashes out of the pit. 
but that was the, the whole duty of some of the Levites. Others, their whole duty was to pack up the tabernacle. Others, it was to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Others, it was to sing and to worship. And it wasn't like now when we have concerts with people either engaged or not engaged. It was everybody together, corporately leading, and all the assembly. Assembly means church, ecclesia. All the church was on the same page with heartfelt, spontaneous worship, singing the psalms to God. That was how some of the Levites led worship. Wasn't a cheerleader like we, you know, we have to beg people to just please, pretty please say, praise the Lord. It wasn't like that. All the Levites, if they were assigned that role. So what's the point? The point is that we all have a role and a function in the body of Christ. We can't say that one person is more valuable than another. That's not a royal priesthood. When we work, when we serve in the priesthood, we are assigned our duty and we are happy. Our function, because see, when we get away from that, whose kingdom are we really building? When we're dissatisfied with the function that we've been asked to perform in the body of Christ, who are we trying to glorify? That's what I believe. I believe we're trying to glorify self. Well, this is beneath me. I'm not, I'm not called to do that, right? Oh, well, that's just, that's just not my calling. Or pastor asks you to do something or somebody asks you to help out with something. Oh, well, let me pray about that. <laughs> I think that's the biggest lie that is told throughout all of American church. Oh, well, I'll pray about that. You're not going to pray about it. You know you're not going to do it anyway. You just don't want to say no on the spot. But when we are a priesthood, we're a team glorifying the only one worthy of glorification. Number seven, and this is big. This is real big. You know, I, I have so many things that I could, I could talk a long time if y'all would let me. This is a big deal. Number seven, we're citizens of a kingdom. I've always been a political nerd junkie, you know, whatever you want to call it. I think the first election that I really got involved in was in the lead-up to the 92 election, uh, Clinton over Bush and Perot. That's the first election that I can, I was in fourth grade. And I've, I've been in, I'm just, I'm just weird. I've always been into politics. Even when I took a detour for a little bit and had a whole whacked-out ideology for, for a minute, uh, the whole time, the one constant has been, I'm into government, I'm into politics. I had two majors in college. I have a bachelor's degree in political science and one in history. That's just, it's just my interest. It's where it's always been. So I get those of us who are interested in politics, in government, in elections, all those things. But if we identify as American citizens before we identify as citizens of a kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that's the same thing. It's synonymous. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. We're, we're going to be a little bit mixed up. We're going to have our priorities wrong. We are first and foremost citizens in a kingdom established by Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. 
We are citizens. And furthermore, okay, let me, <laughs> let me, pre- I mean, let me read Ephesians 2, 12 through 22. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, anytime somebody says but, that negates what they just said. Well, I love you, but <laughs> I think you really look good today, but uh, sorry. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile, there's that word again, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to, the, to you who were far off, that's us Gentiles, he's saying, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, here's the, here's the money quote. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are part of a kingdom. All throughout the Bible, cover to cover, the Bible is a story of government. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. The kingdom of God on earth was lost when Adam handed the keys to the devil. Jesus won it back. All power, all power in heaven and earth is his. He is king. He is Lord. One, one of my biggest pet peeves, you may have heard this if you're around me any amount of time, this whole concept that we have in modern churchianity of accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Like going to Pizza Hut and getting a personal pan pizza. What is that? Thank you. <laughs> it doesn't matter how we choose to respond to it. The fact is that Jesus is Lord. He is King. He does have a kingdom. We can choose to participate or not. Is that too harsh? I don't care. (laughs) If it is, I'm not going to backtrack on that. That's a hill I'm going to die on. Whether we respond to his kingship and his lordship or not. Not he's my lord. You know that old song? I hear some people sing it. He's my lord. He's my lord. He is lord. Yeshua, salvation, Jesus, he is king, he is savior, he is our only hope. He's given us a plan of escape, a plan of salvation, just like God provided Noah with the blueprints and the ark. If he hadn't built the ark, he would have drowned with everybody else. If we don't participate in God's plan of salvation, it does us no good. If we don't apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, We cannot expect the destroyer, the death angel, to pass over. We've got to get involved with his game. 
right? He, he, he has no obligation to come and get involved in our little self-identity and working ourselves up and our, we get our own little fiefdoms and our kingdoms and our self-righteousness, self-importance. It's the message of so much of the church today. Thank God this is not one of them. It's becoming fewer and fewer and further between where Jesus is your personal success coach. He wants everything for your life that you want. He wants to be healthy, wealthy, happy, blah, 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 go down the list. Might as well go to an Anthony Robbins seminar. Jesus is Lord. He died so that we don't have to. He tasted the penalty of sin for us on our behalf. His word says that he loves us and he has forgiven us if we are in him, if we participate in the plan that he has set forward. So why do we go around? I want to I wrap up. I'm going to end a little bit different. Just thank you, Jensen, for taking notes. I think I'm done with what I have prepared. I want to go here in closing. So why as a kingdom, why as a body of Christ are we so weak in so many areas? Now, the, the church is triumphant. Jesus is returning for a glorious church. I get all that. But why are so many people falling, falling away? Why are so many big name organizations, churches, and ministers falling for, for things that just are completely against the word of God? Why do we struggle with the things that we've been struggling with for 20 years. I believe it's because we all have, an, some of us, I say it that way, I believe some of us in here have an identity crisis. We're trying to be two different people at the same time. Some of us have never truly died to self. And I'm preaching to myself. There are, other, there are areas that take longer than others. I think my right foot is the last part of me to get saved when I'm on the highway. And if that ever happens, I'll let you know. <laughs> there are areas that take longer than others. But God wants a total death to self. I die daily. That's what we do when we come to the altar in repentance. We identify with the death of Jesus. Paul says it's no longer I who live. Not Sean, not my dreams of wanting to do this thing with my career and wanting to be on this stage and wanting to whatever, you know, fill in the blank. It's not me who lives. It's not me who lives trying to live a sinless life on my own power. If I could do that on my own without the power of God, there'd be no point to this whole Jesus thing. If we could live a sinless life on our own without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God, he wouldn't have had to die for us in the first place. Some of us, I believe, are living bipolar lives because we've never truly died to self. Our identity comes from the things we have, the things we wear, the opportunities we get or don't get, the success that we achieve in our profession. They come from all these sources and all these places. And I get it. I understand. I'm not throwing stones at anybody. It's human nature. But what I'm saying is we have a higher hope and a higher calling. We've been called to be children of the Most High God. We have been adopted. We've been grafted in. That's our identity. 
I don't care how, I do not care how much or how little is in your bank account. If you are living for the kingdom of God, you will always have enough. I don't know who I'm speaking to, maybe everybody, maybe it's just a general thing. But you will always have enough if you are living for the kingdom. God owns it all. If we're living for ourselves, that's a completely different thing. We can attain worldly wealth. We can attain worldly success. If we do it the right way, great, praise God. If we do it the wrong way, well, we need to, you know, we need to work some things out. That has zero to do with living for the kingdom. If you're putting God first, if your identity is as a child of God, and it's his glory, it's his kingdom we're trying to establish, you will never lack a thing. I've lived that. Faith is not something that comes easily to me. I'm a very critical, cynical person by nature. Very inquisitive, analytical, just like over Faith doesn't come easy. But at this point, God has proven himself so many times in my own life. You can, you can have an argument with me all you want. I have an experience. God has proven himself faithful. His word is true. If you put him first, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. How, how, how do we see ourselves today, church? I want to I wanna do two things in closing. Hopefully, hopefully it will be okay. I, wanna, I want us to do a music video. Uh, Noah, are you going to come help me on the keys today? We're going to have a time of worship in just a moment. We're going to meet with God. We're going to ask God to renew us, to create a right spirit within us. We're going to ask him to reveal the areas that we have failed to crucify in our own lives. The areas that we have not yet died to self, that it's still me living. I got this, God. I'm good. I don't need your help in this area. I got this one figured out. The disappointments that we have, the grudges, the wounds that we have, the scars that we have from being disappointed, not because God ever failed us, but because people failed what we thought we deserved. So what we're going to do for all those who want to participate, I encourage every single one of us in here too. We're going we're gonna to make a step forward to physically get ourselves out of our comfort zone. Come to the front. What's powerful about the front? Nothing. Just symbolizes you're making a step to, get, to do something for God. That's the way I believe anyway. We're going to ask God to speak to us, to give us a new revelation of how he sees us. To replace our ambitions and desires with things that please him. To see ourselves first and foremost as citizens of the kingdom. But while we do that, there's a song, I don't know if y'all know it here, I've never heard it sung here or I've never played it with y'all, but it's a few years old now. I really love it and I I hope it works with the flow of this service. How many of you know who you say I am? I think it's important to see ourselves as God sees us. So sing with, uh, sing with us with the music video. We'll have the lyrics on the, on, on the video. Let's all stand to our feet first.